It's been a little while since we've been in our Old Covenant series, but we are back in it tonight. And I would be, it would be amiss if I preached systematically on the Old Covenant and didn't deal with the distinction between clean and unclean. It's, uh, it's certainly something that you come across as you read through Leviticus or, or other sections of the Torah. And it's actually, I find, it's a fairly complex subject. Because on the one hand, you could say, well, the unclean refers to sin or symbolizes sin. And you can't sin. You've got to be clean. But I don't really think that that's a very compelling argument. First of all, because there's actually moral instructions in the Old Covenant. And God tells us what's sin and what's not sin. So why would God tell us what's sin and what's not sin? And then symbolize sin and not sin at one and the same time. That doesn't make sense. And then, and then you see things that are not sinful, but they're unclean. Like, for example, a woman's menstrual period. Or um, uh, things like touching a, a dead body. It's not a sin, but it is considered unclean. So the whole sin and not sin corresponding exactly to clean and unclean isn't really a very compelling argument, and, and in fact, there are no theologians, no reputable theologians that I'm aware of who, who take such a simplistic view of it. So what do we make of this clean and unclean distinction? That's the subject of our sermon tonight. And it would be helpful to us as we approach this issue to review the imagery of the tabernacle which corresponds to redemptive history. If you will remember, God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then, when Adam sinned, God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And which direction on a compass did God send Adam and Eve when he sent them out of the Garden? Call it out if you remember. Oh, you're delinquents. <laughs> God sent them east out of the Garden of Eden. Alright? So, fallen mankind lived east of the Garden of Eden, or has lived east of the Garden of Eden ever since. And God set an angel to guard the way back into, the, into Eden at the easternmost point. So that if man desired to travel west back into the Garden of Eden, he could not. Because the way was closed to them. Now, many years elapsed between God casting Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and God giving the tabernacle to the people of Israel. But what we see... All those years later, when God gives the tabernacle to Israel, what we see is a visual representation of the whole Old Testament, um, or sorry, yeah, a visual representation of the whole Old Testament system, which itself corresponds to and prefigures all of redemptive history and what God is up to in the world with respect to his redemptive purposes. What we see is that... Many things, of course. We see, for example, sacrifices 
which prefigure the sacrifice of Christ Jesus to atone for our sin, and, and many, many things. So a, a wash basin in which you may um, become pure after having been defiled, and so on and so forth. But as pertains to what I'm really trying to emphasize tonight for the purposes of our study, what we see is mankind given the opportunity to travel west again. The entrance to the tabernacle was at the east of the tabernacle. And so to enter the tabernacle, you had to travel west. And when you come into the tabernacle, you enter into the special presence of God. Now God is omnipresent, of course. So God was present in Eden, and God was present east of Eden all along. God is omnipresent. But when Adam and Eve lived in Eden, Adam walked with God in the pool of the day and enjoyed his special presence. When he was cast out east of Eden, God was there, he was present in an omnipresent sense. But Adam was put away from the special presence of the Lord when he was banished from Eden. Likewise, God was omnipresent in the land of the Philistines and the Ammonites and so on and so forth. But God resided in a special way with his people, with the people of Israel. That I will, they will be my people and I will be their God and I will dwell with them. Was what God, the way that God described his relationship with the people of Israel. And if we, if we elaborate further on that idea, the special place in which God lived among the Israelites was the tabernacle. And so God was present in Israel in a, in a special way that he wasn't present in, in, you know, Philistia or wherever else. But within Israel, God was, was present in a special way in the tabernacle. And so to, to go into the tabernacle, to travel west into the outer court, and then into the holy place, and then into the most holy place, was a visual representation of entering back into the intimacy, back into the communion with God, which Adam and Eve had lost and forfeited when Adam sinned and they were banished from Eden. We learn from the Old Covenant that the way back in involved sacrifices and propitiation and atonement. That, that it wasn't as if Adam's fallen race could just waltz back in westward into the very special communion with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden prior to the fall. They had to have their sins atoned for. The wrath of God had to be propitiated and so on and so forth. And all of this, of course, prefigures and corresponds to Christ Jesus through whom we have atonement for our sins and by whom we can travel westward again, as it were, into the special presence of God. So this is just a, a review of that aspect of the Old Covenant, which is a visual representation of all of redemptive history. Mankind is banished east, away from the presence of God, but by God's provision of, substitutionary, uh, of a substitutionary sacrifice, by God's provision of atonement, man can come westward again into God's special presence. Now, for the purposes of our study tonight, what we need to, to do is to understand that there is a place of God's special presence, and then there is a place which is away from God's special presence. 
There is a west and there is an east, as it were, if I can put it that way. In the place of God's special presence, there's to be no sin, certainly, but there's also to be no reminders or symptoms of the fall of mankind into sin. So not only is sin disallowed in the tabernacle, but so is any symptom of living in a broken world. So is, so is any evidence of living in a broken world. And so, is it a sin, for example, to have a, a uh, disability, or, or you read it, um, I believe it's in, uh, oh shoot, the chapter slipped in my mind and I didn't get down. But there, there's, a, there's a section where it lists a number of, of physical deformities and defects, and it says none of these None of these men can serve as a priest. Now, is it a sin to have any of these, these defects or deformities or disabilities? No, of course it's not. So, why can these men not serve as a priest then? The answer is because in the place of God's special presence, there is, it is visually represented or it is, there is visual representation of the fact that there is no sickness or, or sorrow or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away, if I can quote from Revelation. And I'm trying to tie this all together. I hope you can see the concept that I'm trying to enumerate here. What the, what the tabernacle is supposed to be is a foretaste of that restored and renewed communion with God in which not only is there no sin, but even the effects of sin are not seen anywhere. And so everything is beautiful. Everything is pristine. Everything is fixed. Everything is whole. Everything is pure. Everything is clean. Nothing is dirty. Nothing is defiled. Nothing is deformed. Nothing is defective. So on and so forth. This is, this is what it is to be like in the tabernacle. So that we will see represented that in the special place where God dwells, not only is there no sin, but there are no visible effects of sin. Whereas, outside of the place of God's special presence, in the rest of the camp of the Israelites, and in the wider world, all of these things are part and parcel of normal, everyday life. Now this leads us to a quote from Michael Morales in this excellent but very difficult book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? He argues in this book that the contrast between life and death is at the heart of the clean and unclean laws. He elaborates, understanding Yahweh to be the fountain of life, the spectrum between life and death may be mapped out spatially with life and ordered cosmos at one end, and if I, if I can add, interject here, at the west end, 
and death and chaos at the other end, and if I, again, if I can interject, at the east end. The nearer one approaches Yahweh, in other words, the further west that you travel, the closer one gets to life and abundance. Conversely, the further one is driven from Yahweh, the more deeply death and chaos are experienced. So anything associated with that eastern realm of chaotic wilderness, as opposed to, in contrast with, the idyllic presence of God in the West, as it was in Eden, and as it shall be again someday when the Lord wipes away every tear from our eyes and we experience full, unfettered communion with God and we can walk with Him in the cool of the day. Anything associated with the Eastern realm of chaotic wilderness as opposed to the Western realm of the idyllic presence of God. Even if it is not sinful, Anything associated with that eastern realm of life in a fallen world, it is symbolically unclean. And with this in mind, allow me a lengthy quote from Morales. I'm going to just, I'm going to read a section of this, probably about a full page or so, um, which is why I brought the book tonight rather than typing it out in my word processor. Bear with me here, but I think, he, I think he articulates this in a really helpful way that I would be laboring needlessly to try to, to duplicate as opposed to just reading this lengthy quote. Listen here. With this cultic map in place, right, everything I'm describing about east and west and so on and so forth, with this cultic map in place, we can begin to understand the rationale for why some animals, objects, or people are classified as either clean or unclean. One leading idea argued by Douglas is that the notions of wholeness and normality serve as the primary distinction between clean and unclean. Wenham, however, rightly subsumed these helpful categories under the more fundamental opposition between life and death. Noting that while childbirth, menstruation, and sexual intercourse would surely have been considered normal, and I would interject here, and not sinful, yet they still caused uncleanness because each involved the loss of life liquids, barring, barring people from worship until they recovered from such loss. And Morales quotes Wenham, God, who is perfect life, and perfect holiness can only be approached by clean men who enjoy the fullness of life themselves. The unclean are those who in some way have an aura of death about them, in that they manifest less than physical wholeness. Morales continues, Many of the unclean animals are associated with death in some fashion, whether in being carnivorous predators or scavengers, living in caves or tombs, or like pigs by being associated with underworld deities in pagan worship. Along these lines, creatures that demonstrate some abnormality within their class, like fish without scales, are considered further from the wholeness of an ordered cosmos in terms of life. Similarly, in relation to humans, 
certain physical defects preclude a descendant of Aaron from serving as high priest, since he represents original or restored creation, and must be perfect as a man if he is to be a priest. Various conditions such as skin diseases make Israelites unclean because it brings them into the realm of death. When Miriam becomes leprous, or became leprous, Aaron prayed, Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed. The leper pronounced unclean, therefore, is required to go into mourning, disheveling his hair, rending his clothes, and being exiled outside the camp of Israel. In essence, such a person experienced a living death. Many of the discharges of bodily fluids, such as blood or semen, along with the womb shortly after childbirth, may be correlated with loss of life, rendering one unfit to be in the presence of fullness of life. Because the wilderness represents chaos and death, Sheol, all that severely smacks of death, is driven into the wilderness and away from the presence of God. The need to separate life from death the unclean from the holy also helps explain why, for example, the high priest must never have contact with death, why corpses defile, and why a young goat is not to be cooked in its mother's milk. Depending on the severity of uncleanness, the ritual remedy may be a mere matter of washing and waiting until evening, or it may require purification offerings, the person remaining unclean for seven days, or even being banished from the camp of Israel. Uncleanness, then, seems to have cast the shadow of death over its bearers. While contracting uncleanness was a movement from life towards death, the purification rituals were understood as a movement from death towards life, typically involving symbols of life, blood and water, etc., etc., and goes. I think you understand the concept. If I were to say, what does clean and unclean correspond to? Here's what I want to leave you with. Not sin and not sin. East and West. Okay, put the cultic map in your mind. That West is the presence of God in Eden, where Adam walked with God in the cool of the day and everything was perfect. Adam was banished from the garden and sent eastward into a world of fallenness, Chaos, disorder, so on and so forth. Alright? In this world, we have not only sin and guilt, but we have just brokenness, fallenness, and so on and so forth. What God is doing is working to bring us back westward, not only away from sin, but away from everything that's broken and disordered and defective. And the categories of clean and unclean in the Old Covenant served as a visual representation of being free from the defects and disorder and so on and so forth of life in a fallen world. And so that everything in the tabernacle would be not only morally pure, but actually physically clean, physically whole, etc. And that's a visual parable for us of what God is doing in bringing us back westward into his perfect presence. So that one day, as Revelation 21 says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Not only will we be free from sin, but we will be free from life in a fallen world, and all of the disorder, and chaos, and defect, and lack of wholeness that we experience here in this present age. The clean and the unclean, therefore, represent not sin and moral purity, but east and west. Fix that in your mind, and then when you're doing your devotions early next year, according to your Bible reading plan, and you get to Leviticus in about February, you're not going to be as confused, okay? Clean and unclean is a visual parable of east and west. Now, what do we do with this? Alright, that's what, that's what it is theologically. What do we do with this? Let me, let me first deal with the role of cleanness in the Old Covenant, and then we're going to deal with the relationship of Jesus to uncleanness. Alright. The message of the Old Covenant distinction between clean and unclean is that if you can't get free from the effects of the fall, then you can't enter God's presence. Right? Cleanness is a prerequisite to sanctification. In other words, things can't become holy before they're clean. So there's three categories. There's unclean, then there's clean, and then there's holy. And you can't go directly from unclean to holy. You have to go from unclean to clean, and then you have to go from clean to holy if you're going to enter into the tabernacle. Alright? So if you're unclean, you've got to get free of your uncleanness. Remember, this doesn't mean you've got to get free of your sin. It means you've got to get free of the effects of life in a fallen world. Alright, or at least, I'm going to elaborate on this, but at least in the specific ways that God specified. Alright? Now, this really should have led people to despair if they thought about it carefully. Because if they thought about it carefully, they could realize that they couldn't really avoid uncleanness universally and indefinitely. Right, I, said, I said I was going to elaborate on it. We have to understand that the specific laws of cleanness and uncleanness that God gave are really just a subset of an almost infinite number of ways that you can work out this principle of life in a fallen world as opposed to life in God's unfettered, immediate presence. Alright? So God gave very specific things. You know, you can't touch this carcass. You know, after you give birth, you're unclean for however many days, and so on and so forth. God gave a bunch of very specific rules. But if you were to work out the principle that, that the commonality between all of these uncleannesses is that they're symptomatic and, and visually representative of life after the fall, life outside the Garden of Eden. And then you start to realize that, that cleanness is a visual representation of being free from the effects of the fall and life outside of Eden. You'd start to think, well, I can't get universally free of the effects of the fall and life outside of Eden. 
So for example, I'm just, I'm coming up with this example off the top of my head. So if you find a scripture that contradicts this correctly, all right? But I don't think, for example, if you had a respiratory illness, I don't think you would be disallowed from going in the tabernacle. But a respiratory illness is certainly an effect of the fall, right? So, so let's say if you're missing one leg, you can't go serve as a priest. But maybe if you have a respiratory illness, you can't. Right? You see what I'm saying? There are specific ways where God said, okay, if this is the case, X, Y, Z, you can't serve as a priest. But if you start to extrapolate and work out the principle of why not and what does this represent, you start to realize, well, there may be effects of the fall that are technically okay under the auspices of the Old Covenant. But if this is all a picture of something bigger, then does that mean I can't participate in the return westward into God's presence if I can't get myself free, say, from my respiratory illness or whatever else it might be? Right? In other words, there may be things that God didn't specify as being unclean, which might still fall under the rubric of what we're talking about tonight, in terms of how the principles can be worked out. Can you set yourself free from the effects of the fall? Of course not. Even just avoiding uncleanness in the ways specified in the Old Covenant would be very difficult. Universally freeing yourself from every aspect of fallenness and life outside of Eden is just an impossibility. Moreover, not only can you not universally free yourself from uncleanness, but let's say that you could free yourself from uncleanness hypothetically, like tomorrow at noon. Could you stay clean forever? The answer to that is no. There's just no way. So when you start to realize that uncleanness symbolizes life outside of Eden, and you start to think, well, I could never get myself universally clean, and I could never get myself indefinitely clean, then you start to be like, whoa. So if the only hope of going westward back into God's presence is getting clean and staying clean, and if I'm unclean, I have to go out of God's presence again, you start to realize that you've got a big problem on your hands, right? Who can rescue us from the effects of the fall? Who can rescue us not only from our sin, but from life in a fallen world, from our environment in which we see all around us the effects of the fall, in which we interact with other fallen people, in which, in which we deal with disease and death and deformity, and abnormality, and all kinds of various defects. Who can free us from all of this? Well, let's talk now about the relationship of Jesus to uncleanness. First of all, Jesus taught us that the cleanness laws were just symbolic. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 and following say this. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. 
There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declares all foods clean. What Jesus is teaching us here is that there is symbolism to the, the cleanness rules. And it's not, it's not actually a moral issue of whether you eat this particular food or don't eat that particular food. But there's something, there's something represented by these things. And so it's not the symbol that matters so much as the substance. This is what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 7. And with the advent of Jesus, the symbolism is no longer necessary. In Acts chapter 10, we read this. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open, something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, again, what we see in this passage is the doing away of the clean and the unclean laws of the Old Testament. And we see again here this teaching that there was a symbolic utility to these clean and unclean laws throughout the period of the Old Covenant times. But what really matters is not the symbolism of it, but the substance of it. And the substance of it, again, is this. Not only are we sinners cast out east of Eden, but we live in a sin-cursed world. And we live around other sinners. And we deal with the effects of living in a fallen world. And so we need not only to be forgiven, but we also need to be rescued from the fallenness from the, the less than wholeness, from the brokenness, from the less than idealness. We need to be rescued from the environment where God's special presence is not. And we need to be brought out of the wilderness into the special presence of God once again. And of course... Well, let me, let, me, let me give you a sentence here to summarize everything I've said so far and what the New Testament teaches us. What we really need to be rescued from is not the symbolism of being separated from God east of Eden, but what we need to be rescued from is actually being separated from God east of Eden.
and the clean and unclean laws were just symbolic of that separation and were just a teaching tool, an object lesson of that separation and our need to be rescued from that. So Jesus, of course, you know I'm going to get there. Jesus is the one who rescues us from that actual separation from God. I want to point out a, a couple of, of uh, wonderful things about Jesus. First of all, we read in John chapter 15 and verse 3, where Jesus says to his disciples, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And the word is not just a single word, but it's, it stands for the whole body of teaching that Jesus had given the disciples. So in other words, the revelation of God in him, right, the gospel, makes us clean. So, so Jesus coming into this world, dwelling among us and revealing the Father, right, and, and teaching us, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which has been spoken just a chapter prior to this verse of John 15, 3. We can get clean. We can be rescued from the actual separation from God here east of Eden by the word that Jesus has spoken to us, the gospel. Right? John 13, verses 1 to 11, the famous foot-washing passage. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Look, it's Jesus who gets us clean. It's Jesus who's going to ultimately free us, not only from the guilt of our sin, but even from the effects of the fall. He's going to make us whole again. He's going to make us what we ought to be. Our bodies, our souls, everything is going to be right. And he's going to bring us into the tabernacle, the most holy place. He's going to bring us back into Eden, so to speak. If I can use those, those visuals to describe what is happening through Jesus. He's making us clean and bringing us westward again into the immediate presence of God. I want to read one Old Testament passage and one beautiful New Testament passage as we come to a conclusion here. 
Haggai chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Well, I should have put a bookmark here. Sometimes finding these Old Testament prophets are a little tricky. my shade to the index. <laughs> Alright, here we go. Hey, you're chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, that is holy food in the Holy Ghost, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Alright, so under the Old Covenant, the way things work is that if an unclean thing comes into contact with a holy thing, the holy thing becomes unclean. As opposed to the unclean thing becoming holy. Alright? Now I want, with that in mind, to turn you to an absolutely beautiful section of Luke's Gospel. Chapter 5, verse 12, and following. Well, Jesus was in one of the cities. There came a man full of leprosy. So clean or unclean? Unclean, right? And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. This man could not make himself clean. Neither could any of the priests make this man clean. There is nothing that anyone could do to make this man clean so that he could go westward into the most holy place, into the immediate presence of God. With man, it is impossible. And such is, such is our case. We cannot get ourselves universally and indefinitely clean. Not only forgiven of our sin, but free from defects and, and deformities and, and shortcomings and brokenness and, and hurt and pain and all of the fallenness of this world. Such that, that we can go to a place where there's no sorrow or mourning or lack of wholeness or brokenness and fit in and belong there and not mar the place. We can't get ourselves clean 
to go into a place where there's no other unclean things and fit in. We can't get ourselves back into Eden. But like this man, we can come to Jesus. We can say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, look here in this passage. It doesn't say that he said, I will be clean, and then reached out his hand and touched him. See what it says here? Jesus reached out his hand and touched him, and then said, I will be clean. So what happened here is not that we got clean, or that this man got clean, and then went into the presence of the Holy One. What happened here is that the Holy One traveled eastward into the wilderness, into the chaos, into the defilement, into the brokenness, and the Holy One of Israel touched the unclean and made him holy. And if I can extrapolate on that, essentially invited this man then to turn and travel back westward with him, back into the very presence of God. This is a visual representation again of what God does for us in the gospel. The Holy One of Israel has come eastward for us to meet us in our uncleanness, to touch us in our uncleanness, to make us clean, so that we may be welcome and invited to go westward again, back into the very presence of God, forever to enjoy unfettered communion with Him in a place where there is no sickness or sorrow or pain or crying or death anymore, for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. What a Savior.